Today on the Relationship Revival Show, we're talking to Madeline Snyder. Maddie is a licensed marriage and family therapist working in private practice in Los Angeles. She specializes in working with neurodivergent individuals and couples, and she's also an adjunct professor of psychology at Azusa Pacific University in their master's counseling program. Maddie was brought to the field of psychology by her own experiences of mental illness within her family growing up. Her experience of having a parent that struggled with mental health provided her with insight about the need for mental health services in communities that are underserved. Maddie's currently interested in exploring mental health challenges and high masking individuals. You're listening to the Relationship Revival Podcast with John DeBach, also known as Mr. Spirituality. That's me. I'm your host giving you insights and guidance from over 10 years in the field of this amazing journey we call romance. On this show, I go over everything you need to know about how to get into a relationship, how to get the most out of a relationship, and sometimes even how to gracefully end a relationship without pulling your hair out and going crazy. And occasionally, I'm even joined by new and old friends who are also relationship experts to bring you guidance and wisdom with new perspectives. Thanks for stopping by. Maddie Snyder, thank you so much for joining Hi there. Good to be here with you today. And I'm looking forward to talking. Me too. And I think, you know, right off the bat, you had a pretty interesting upbringing where you dealt with some stuff that makes mm-hmm. you particularly qualified to kind of talk from a first person experience of what some of that trauma looks like. Can you, you know, fill everybody in, walk us through what experience you had growing up, how and how that informed you as a therapist? Yeah, it's a, I mean, obviously a huge part of what brought me to therapy. And I sometimes have like the elevator pitch version of this or like no, the no, longer no. version. The long version. So I want to hear the details. We'll give you the longer version yeah, yeah. and we'll get into it. Uh, so part of, you know, my upbringing is that when I was a teenager, my, um, I had a parent who was diagnosed with pretty severe mental illness, uh, my mother. And so, uh, the area that we lived in, uh, where I grew up is Central Valley of California. Um, it's not usually what people think of when they think of California as far as like the beach yeah, and, yeah. you know, Sunshine celebrity and, and all right. that. Exactly. It's a little bit different. Um, I grew up kind of in the country. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that are unique to that part of California. But one of the things mental health wise is that it didn't feel like there was a ton of accessibility to find therapists or access to mental health care. Uh-huh. Um, I think at the time, the closest therapist that we could find for my mom was like an hour away uh 45 minutes to an hour so the next town over yeah so if you're like you know working all day long uh you have to either like take a day off or you have to go after work and then that's a whole two-hour thing so and it's obviously um, pre-zoom and everything where you could actually exactly pre-zoom pre any of that so i mean now that's changed a lot for that area but you know particularly like when i grew up our family's kind of navigating this whole mental health crisis for the first time um, it's not something, you know, this was years ago, so there's not as many, um, resources, therapies, just kind of starting to be destigmatized. There's a lot that we're working up against as far as like resources available to us. Um, I think at the time when she was diagnosed, uh, she was hospitalized and the hospital was like an hour away Oof. and then was transferred to a place that was like in Ventura that was like, you know, three hours away. Yeah. So that's the kind of climate that we're looking at. How, how um, old were you when this happened? When the diagnosis? Happened? I was about 13 years old. That's so I was pretty young. Age, yeah. It was really pivotal. And if you think about, you know, I was going from eighth grade to high school, you're in a small town. So 
Um, it's not like there is some big, huge public announcement, but everyone kind of knows that this is going on within our family. My mom was pretty prominent figure within our community. And so, um, yeah, it was a, a lot happening at once. She was also really highly productive. So it was really shocking for people because again, she was a, um, an art teacher. Oh, okay. So she taught at all the elementary schools. So a lot of times, like I would go to high school and everyone's like, we all know your mom. Yeah. She's great. Everyone called her Mrs. Snydart. Um, kind of like a play on her last name. So yeah, um, that was, uh, yeah, there's a lot of dynamics there as far as like, she's highly, she was highly productive and also struggling pretty severely. She had, uh, bipolar disorder and psychosis. Um, and there's a number of other diagnoses thrown out there. Yeah. Um, and back then bipolar wasn't really super well researched and and mm -hmm. well understood, even in the psychiatric community, the medications available were pretty minimal. I think like exactly. lithium was probably the only thing available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Weight gain and, and other issues that come up when you take that. Exactly. So then you have to deal with like self-esteem issues as well. Lethargic pretty drastic changes within your body. Yeah. yeah. And she's like a mom of three kids too. That's right. So there's yeah. a ton of, you know, there's like so much there to unpack and getting into grad school. I'm kind of like the holder of all the family heirlooms. I like doing all the family history. Are you so. the, are you the I'm, oldest? Where are you in the pecking order? I'm in the middle. I'm a middle um, child too. <laughs> yeah. So you, I got that vibe from you. You get it. <laughs> you understand. Yeah. And I kind of have taken a different route than my siblings and we could, you know, talk about that down the line, sure. but I'm kind of, yeah, definitely the, I'm, pretty true to like all the theories around middle children, I would say. I'm not but, uh, actually. It's one of those areas <laughs> really? I'd like stayed away from. So maybe, yeah, I just selfishly, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about it, but later, later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's okay. probably how our conversation is going to go. We're going to start talking and be like, oh, and that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. we'll, to, we'll try to stay on task. So what, but uh, yeah. So, so your mom got diagnosed and she spent some time in the hospital. Mm -hmm. What, what happened next? So uh, yeah, the there was a bunch of different diagnoses at the time so part of like when i uh, um this is gonna tie in i promise but part of like when i got to grad school i was my dad gave me this box of all of her medical records so now as a clinician looking through this i had like a completely different understanding you know of what was happening because there was like major depressive diagnosis a schizophrenia diagnosis bipolar with these different you know hospitals and clinicians everyone's kind of has a different theory on it yeah um, the prognosis at the time was not super positive. So they kind of said she's looking at a longer term hospitalization. Um, she was in a facility for like three months and then was able to actually come home, which was not expected. So yeah. they there were some new medications that were coming out at the time. They put her on some of them. They found something that worked for her um, and she was able to come back home. And um, it didn't feel like as a family, we had the tools to talk about it. And we weren't in family therapy at the time or any of that. And so it kind of felt like things just proceeded as normal. Like we had this huge thing happen and then it felt like, okay, let's just kind of pretend everything's okay yeah. and we'll keep chugging along. And I think that was her way of coping with her mental illness. I mean, cause this didn't come out until she was in her uh, late forties. Yeah. She'd been struggling with depression pretty much her whole life. Wow. Um, yeah. So that was kind of how things went from there. Um, was was yeah. there... And if I'm getting too personal, just, you know, let me know. I'll back up. Mm -hmm. Was there, was there trauma in her past that instigated it or was it just kind of general undiagnosed depression? Uh, yeah, there was some trauma and a lot of that to me is unclear. You know, as adult, yeah. I have so many questions yeah. that I would ask now if she was still here. Um, and so there was some childhood trauma as far as like talking with her siblings a little bit. 
um, talking with my dad. All of it is like through stories, right? Yeah. Because at the time I was in my teenage years, I didn't get a chance to hear. So you're repiecing um, all the fragments that you hear third. Exactly. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. I feel like I could, I could write like a whole book on this because it's just been such a journey of like, I was really close with my mom and there's all these things now that I'd love to talk to her about, especially as a therapist trying to understand my own upbringing. Right. Yeah. So there was childhood trauma and then even, you know, she had some birth trauma, um, and things like that, that just really, I think weighed on her yeah. over the years. I actually have all her diaries. So I've been working through those oh, wow. and it's really interesting to hear, to read some of the narratives of like times she was struggling. That yeah. must be hard to read too. Yeah. It's hard. And it's like connecting too, right? Because it's like, this is what I have left. And it's kind of feels like a gift where I, I can read some of it. And it's just, you know, it seems like, transitional low-grade type depression uh but it's yeah it's been really healing in a way too wow yeah and so what you, you mentioned your mom's no longer with us what happened mm -hmm. yeah so uh she came you know came home from the hospital it's 13 or 14 things were pretty good for a few years um and i don't have you know i'm not entirely sure what was happening for her then uh, but when i was 17 she had had uh for a while been struggling kind of with a a relapse in mental in her mental health uh, diagnoses as far as like depression and yeah. bipolar and had been experiencing some of those symptoms and went off of her medication. Oh, that's um, yeah. and then that's rad. That's bad. Uh, a lot of this, no one had any idea. Yeah. So she seemed fine to everyone. Um, and then one day it was really unexpected. She, uh, my dad and I got home and she had died by suicide. And so that was part of my own trauma history that I had to work through yeah. but that um how old were you at the time? it was i was 17 at the time and so i was just a senior in, in high school and and you know um i had been i mean luckily i'd gotten through you know that whole high school experience with uh along with like her mental illness was my own anxiety yeah right knowing that this is a possibility because uh when she got diagnosed i became really interested in psychology so i know like you know with depression this is a risk um yeah so for me, it felt like it, I mean, obviously soul crushing for everyone, but it's been really interesting to see the different parts of it. My specific trauma surrounding being there when she died um, versus my siblings and me having to call and tell them about it, you know, different, yeah. different experiences. Um, yeah. And so it, it, there's a lot we could talk about there too, as far as suicide particularly is, is hard for people to understand and having a parent who dies by suicide is different than like cancer where people kind of know and there's yeah, please um, tell me a more time about that, that I don't I don't know a lot about it um thankfully I don't, yeah. I don't have a lot of experiences but I'm sure there are going to be people who listen to it who might know a friend mm -hmm. or might be scared if they have someone in their family with a mental illness and I think talking yeah. about this and, and shining more light on it is is beneficial for everybody yeah, I think it is super important. And that's why I like, I talk about this as much as I can. And obviously try to do that tactfully. Cause again, um, it's just a really, I think a hard topic for people to understand and yeah. to talk about. But I think part of what I've learned about losing a parent to suicide is when you, if you've had the experience of losing a loved one, when you tell someone like, oh yeah, I lost a parent, right? Already people are kind of on edge. They're like, usually want to say something like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then you kind of feel like you're having to be like, oh, no, no, it's okay. Or yeah, it really sucks. And you have to kind of figure out how much of that can they hold or not. Right. But already having lost a parent at a young age, people are kind of like, oh, I'm not sure. 
how to how to navigate a conversation around this if they you know haven't had conversations like this before or experienced a loss themselves. But even further than that, when you say you have a parent who died by suicide, then people really struggle to know what to say, right? And then you're put in this position of having to try to feel you're feeling the uncomfortability, they're feeling it, and then you're like right. trying to wrap it up with a nice bow, yeah. right? So that it feels have to more comfortable. Reprocess all your own grief. You then mm -hmm. have to educate them on the social etiquette of what to do next. Right. They're at loss, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, wait, you're supposed to be comforting me yeah. here, right? Yeah, and but you're 17 it's, to it, boot, you know? It's exactly. Like, oh, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And at 17, oh my gosh, people do not, like, kids don't know how to talk about yep. it, right? And yeah. so I think a lot of my friends' strategy was like, let's just distract her and we'll just have fun. But I felt, just really lonely yeah. um, during that time because, you know, I'm helping uh, out at home more. I had a younger brother. My my dad was at home still. And so, um, yeah, just being more at home, helping out there. And my friends are off like having their last fun summer before college. And it was just really isolating. I don't think teenagers know how to talk about this either, how to support someone who's lost a, a parent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think adults mm -hmm. don't either, but yeah, but mm -hmm. but it's especially hard when you like throw puberty and everything else into the phone. Mm -hmm. How old's your younger brother? Or what's the age gap? I should ask. Uh, we're four years apart. So he was, so he was like 13 at the time. Yeah. yeah. So you became mom mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so similar to my mom. Like me and her would always cook dinner and meals together. So that's something I enjoyed. I would take on that role. And my mom, absolutely incredible mom, like rock star mom, everyone you talk to, like anyone I talked to was like, how did she do it all? She would do these like elaborate birthday parties for us growing up. And like, everyone would have a themed costume and like a party favor to take home. So um, yeah, there was a lot of ways that I understood motherhood differently because of her example of that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of ways I stepped into that role. Um, yeah. I used to like pick up my brother from school a lot, but not just that we had to go like get a milkshake too. And then I had to come home and be like, now let's do this, you know, very much. Um, active. well, it sounds like she left yeah. you with a lot of gifts, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, yeah, she what, did. what is some practical advice, uh, that you could, offer someone if they run into someone who's lost a parent, you know, let's start there. Let's, how do you, how do you have that conversation? What are things that you wanted to hear that no one told you? What are things that people said that you didn't want to hear? I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, a good place to start. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, um, gosh, there's a lot of them. I kind of started doing some writing on this myself as I became a therapist. Cause I think, again, it's just an area a lot of people don't know about. Um, one of the things that I'll say a lot around loss is I think one thing that's helpful is like, there's this outpouring of love and support at the beginning, which is like amazing, right? Like I had all of my mom's siblings in town and my grandparents and people I hadn't talked to in years and a ton of support. And then it feels like that kind of dwindles after a while. So one like super practical thing I'll tell people is like, if you have a close friend who's had a loved one pass away. I'll tell them like, write that person's, you know, death anniversary down in your calendar or put a reminder in your phone six months from now to reach out. Yeah. Whenever I have this happen with friends, I'll just put a reminder like, hey, reach out to Sarah in six months, yeah. right? Or reach out um, on her, remind her on her death anniversary that you're thinking of her, or like Father's Day, Mother's Day, graduations, because part of what's hard about losing someone is like, Yes, there's that um, grief period at the beginning, but every single time you have an accomplishment, you're like so excited and also so missing that person and wish they could be there. Yeah. 
Um, so that's like one practical thing that I'll mention to people is like, yeah, be there at the beginning. Don't try to make it better. Um, don't try to be like, you know, everything happens for a reason or don't try to make it about you just sitting with somebody asking them what they need or just, just being just present sitting with there them. and being quiet with them even. Yeah. Mm hmm. Or, you know, saying <laughs> some people don't like quiet. So do you need a distraction? Right. right. Um, kind of, yeah, just being there in the ways that they need you to be there rather than the ways that are most comfortable for you. Yeah. I think it's important. I remind as a couples counselor, you always deal with what, you know, doing what resonates for the other person. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. when it's not your part, I mean, it, when it's your partner and it's the most intimate relationship, you know, people still don't know what the heck to do. So asking mm -hmm. is a big part of it saying, what can I do yeah. for you? Can you want me to just sit here? Do you want me to, yeah, I can make mm -hmm. you a meal or do you want to talk about mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's like being there. And then I think sometimes it's just like just doing something. Yeah. Because I think sometimes people are so afraid to say or do the wrong thing that they just are like, you know, they probably have other people reaching out. They probably have other people helping them. I'm just going to lay back. And I, and sometimes it's like, just say or do something, be willing to mess up and be willing to sit with that uncomfortability. Yeah. Um, but like, do whatever it takes to let that person know you're there for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredible. How's it informed mm -hmm. your, your practice and the way you work with others now? Do you do a lot of grief? counseling and do you do a lot of uh work with people who've lost parents i mean or is it mm -hmm. not a focus for you um it hasn't been a focus as much but it's something i definitely feel comfortable about when it comes up like when i have a parent someone come in and they're like oh i lost this person i'm like all right i feel like i know what to do i know how to jump into this um i know how to like make sure that i bring it up in future sessions because sometimes it feels like the rest of the world moves on and you're like wait i'm still back here processing yeah. this thing yeah um the interesting thing for me is what i kind of have pivoted to and what got me interested in where i'm at now is working with family members who have a uh, working with people who have a family member who has struggled with mental illness right so I end up working a lot with like children or um, that's how I kind of got started. Children, uh, spouses, siblings, all that kind of deal who have a, a family member. Um, that was like what got me um, into psychology. Mm -hmm. And now that has pivoted into uh, neurodivergence and helping both neurodivergent individuals, but also a lot of times I'm working with the family members who are trying to support and just, I, I've had a whole episode on neurodivergence, but just as a reminder, mm -hmm. in case this is the first episode you're listening to, the way I understand it is neurodivergent essentially means your brain works a little differently. Like that's the shorthand mm -hmm. version. So it, it's kind of an yeah. umbrella term for people who might have ADHD or dyspraxia or just a, mm -hmm. you know, or, or a different disorder of some sort. Is that accurate mm -hmm. to you or do you have a slightly? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's pretty accurate to it. And, you know, autism ticks, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, discrepancy. Not everyone has like a set, there's not like a set term for this. Right. right? But a lot of times, like the way that you can encompass it is just that you have your brain that works differently than other people's brains. Yeah. Di you diverge mm -hmm. from the normal brain chemistry. That's the neuro exactly. neurodivergent. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, we all, we've all run into those couples socially, whether we're in the mental health field or counseling world or coaching mm -hmm. world or whatever or not, everybody kind of has run into someone who is married or has a family member that has some, some kind of things that are different than the rest mm -hmm. of the population. What are some good kind of practical advice? 
advice that you can give to someone who's really struggling? So someone who has a family member or even a romantic partner that, you know, deals with depression or, or a different kind of thing that, uh, that makes it difficult to kind of have that kind of empathetic relationship. Yeah. Um, there's so much there, right? Cause, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about part of it is it feels like a, a marathon, right? You have to think about this long-term if you're in a relationship with someone who is struggling with depression or anxiety or some kind of neurodivergence, um, it's, it's like thinking about the things that are going to be sustainable long-term, yeah. not just what's going to work moment to moment, but how do we create sustainable practices for ourselves? How do we help understand each other's like behavior, verbals, nonverbals? How do we help um, understand like, what do you need when you're in crisis or what do you need when you're feeling really low motivation or when you're feeling super anxious? Um, one of the, I'm, you might've done this with your couples, but one thing that I like to do is having them check in like, Hey, do you need me to listen to you right now? Do you need advice? Yeah. Um, do you need to sit in silence? Do you need a distraction? I do it. I do yeah. it very often when you have kind of a heteronormative couple and men tend mm -hmm. to be these problem solvers in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I tend to train yeah. them. Like you might want to ask if they want the problem solved or they just want to talk mm -hmm. about it, you know? So that, that comes yeah. up quite a bit for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that idea though ties along with like the grief thing I was talking about too, right? It's like, I, I've been exploring this question of like, how do we get to determine, like who determines if, um, if something feels loving or not, right? Mm -hmm. Is it the person receiving it or the person giving it? Because the person could be do, doing something for you they feel like is really loving and caring, yeah. but if that's not how you feel cared for, right? You don't really necessarily sure, receive it. Sure. So it's like this really complex concept, especially when you bring in like parenting, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes it might not feel loving to the kid, but we know we're helping to set a, so that's a boundary interesting. for that's interesting. You know, I don't think about that often as a couple's counselor, but the children mm -hmm. throws a monkey wrench. Because I would say if it's a couple who are both adults and they've had time to kind of live their life and now they're a couple, then the, the short answer is the receiver gets to decide if it's love, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's, but that comes with a caveat of the onus is on them to explain if they're not feeling loved and try and redirect the behavior. And that's the part people right. don't have the language skills to kind of do, right? If someone washes your yeah. car for you thinking it's the greatest gift you can do because it's you hate washing your car and they're like, well, I could have just paid someone 20 bucks. Like what's the big deal? You know, but they mm -hmm. don't say that then. Yeah, there's, there's, it falls through the cracks, but children's interesting. That's fascinating mm -hmm. because children do not have, the ability to say that's not how I want to feel. They just don't. And you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a concept that's foreign to most adults and it falls completely on deaf ears. So you kind of have to, you know, and as a parent, you have to take on the responsibility of like, well, what kind of love language do I want them to develop? You know? Exactly. Yeah. And like, what am I teaching them in my interactions with them? Yeah. Knowing that children are like sponges constantly absorbing everything that they're seeing, right. constantly absorbing their caregivers interactions and learning how to adapt. Yeah. Yeah, it's complex. It's, and and when I when I talk to people about the five love languages and and in terms of parenting, whenever I get someone who's like really fervent and about acts of service, I like the next question out of my mouth is, "Did you have a single parent home?" Because mm -hmm. moms or dads that raise the kids alone don't have time to be 
verbally affectionate and physical affectionate often. And they're so busy just making lunches that it, like, is that the reason that you appreciate and like kind of learned love because your mom was just too busy to do anything else. And I find it does, mm -hmm. it's a very high, at least anecdotally, it's very high percentage that that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's like, as we're talking, this, this is a big question I've been pondering as far as like, who gets to decide, yeah. right, if it's a loving thing or not, because I think another thing I'm thinking about is boundaries and how a lot of times setting a boundary can be a loving thing, yeah, right? Yeah. You're like trying to set a boundary with like what you're able to do. Um, but when you're able to say like, hey, I'm just not able to give that today, that can feel very not loving right. from your partner, right? right? right. Um, but it is a, a loving thing, yeah. right? Yeah. So this is like, it kind of reminds me of the parenting thing too. A lot of times you're like having to set these things that are like, containing um, boundaries or things to keep someone safe yeah, um, or to keep the relationship safe. And with kids, we are, we're really good. Adults aren't good at this, but, but parents are good <laughs> about like it, setting time limits. I found. Yeah. So like if you have, yeah. if you have one partner who's really physical and one who's not, the answer isn't to not be physical, right? The answer right. is like, they feel like there's no end to the physicality. So it's like, well, what if you guys agreed to 10 minutes of just sitting together, mm -hmm. then the person gets something that they want. And the other person is like, only 10 minutes, I can deal with that. You know, so it's, yeah, so there's, there yeah. is a way to do it where everybody feels taken care of, but you, you know, that mm -hmm. takes a really mature, patient person to be able to verbalize that. That's really hard. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, like these are the things that we, the skills that we usually learn, you know, growing up in our families. And then we bring those skills into our older adult relationships and uh, it does take a lot of talking about it and like helping somebody understand why you did something and what that meant to you and what, how it felt for you when they said this thing and all of that. And so I think that's maybe a newer concept within parenting is like this very um, slow explaining um, attuned type of parenting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a lot, it's a lot harder too, you know, when you have, yeah, and we're a different generation for sure. We're like, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're in the, I love you generation now where people are yeah. overly effusive and, and sometimes like mm -hmm. it's that, that in itself has kind of created a, a knee jerk reaction in the opposite way for some kids. So. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a lot different. Again, like I'm thinking about my own family of origin and my mom, like her parents grew up in the great depression yeah. and her parents' family uh, immigrated here. And so it's a very different, like the challenges that they were dealing with in the parenting styles were obviously completely different than me now generations yeah. later. We still have our own mm -hmm. issues. One of the, one of the areas of study that you're fascinated with, I, I wanted to ask you about um, mm -hmm. high mask, high masking individuals. Mm -hmm. So that's a yeah. new term for the show. And I'm going to add, like, okay. you know, take the floor and kind of define what it is mm -hmm. and what fascinates you about it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when we talk about uh, masking, it's usually a term used within neurodivergent communities to talk about the things that people do to try to fit in with neurotypical people socially. So it's usually a term, uh, masking is like a social term that we use. Um, so there's this book that's wonderful that I talk to people about all the time called Unmasking Autism. Um, it's by Devin Price. I really hope I got the last name right on that. I'll look it up. <laughs> but, okay, thanks. I was just about to. Unmasking Autism? Unmasking Autism. Um, unmasking I recommend or unmasking? it. Unmasking. Unmasking. Yeah, it's Devin yeah. Price. Okay, perfect. Yep. I second guessed myself no, for yeah, a second. Yeah, PhD so, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, everyone should. Definitely check it out, uh, explores a lot of these concepts. But the idea with masking is that, um, you know, people will create this way of being socially so that they can be, usually it's so they can be more successful socially. 
So uh, at work, you know, maybe hand flapping or, you know, uh, shaking your leg or doing some of these more erratic behaviors, stimming as we might call it. Um, if you do that in your workplace, it's not, you're going to be looked at as weird or off or it's not professional. And I'm putting that in air quotes, yeah. which they might, people might, won't be able to see. So the um, idea is people tend to mask some of those behaviors. And then the, the high masking individuals is people who usually have become very adept at masking. Another way um, that I kind of think about this is people who tend to be highly productive. So people who have pretty severe um, struggles with their either autism for depression, anxiety, whatever it is, right? So that part of it feels very severe to them, but they are also highly productive. They're able to, and part of what we're getting into is like the medical model of how we determine care is usually determined by functioning. So we'll say, are you able to function at work, at home, you know, in these different contexts? Um, And we have an idea of what that means. So we say like, okay, you're doing all those things. Great, you're good. Versus like, what's their normal level of functioning and what are they at now? Yeah. So that's kind of where the high masking comes in. I kind of think about it as people who are able to be socially successful, able to be highly productive, but that doesn't necessarily negate the severity of their struggle with um, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for you and illness. for you and me, it might be really simple to get on mm-hmm. a podcast and have a conversation over Zoom or you record it, but someone who has some disorder or some kind of neurodivergence that, mm-hmm. that makes this as painful as going and getting like a root canal and you don't see yeah. what's going on by, behind the surface, right? Mm-hmm. That anguish no, is still living inside of them. And like, they're spent. I mean, you know, I had mm-hmm. the, another therapist I had on here that talked about neurodivergence. She said, you know, when I go to the grocery store and I come back, I'm done for the day. You know, Mm -hmm. there's just so many choices to make. There's music playing. There's really bright light. She's like, it's too much. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's Mm -hmm. really interesting to kind of growing that empathy in the culture and kind of, you know, teaching people to ask those questions. I think it's a really good step in the right direction. Right. Well, we look at successful individuals and we say, well, they can't possibly be struggling in some way. Right. They couldn't possibly be neurodivergent. Um, they're highly successful rather than um, a lot of times there's people who are highly successful and able to mask very highly um, and also still struggling pretty significantly. So fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, Maddie, I want to, first of all, thank you for being so, you know, open and, and, and Mm -hmm. uh, like an open book really about your past and, and brave about sharing your, you know, those painful memories of your past and kind of for the betterment Mm -hmm. of everybody. That's really very touching that you that you're so giving and generous in that way and thank you for kind of inspiring me to go read a new great book uh that i haven't mm-hmm. heard of so i appreciate it and, and just thank you for coming here and sharing your time and your wisdom yeah thank you so much for having me here i think it's important to do it's stuff i've obviously processed and that's the only reason i'm able to share it is because yeah. i've done a lot of the work to process it in therapy and to write about it and to share about it on other places and so i think um, yeah, suicide in particular is really important for us to get more comfortable talking about, even just like saying the word out loud yeah. and, and having more conversation about it. If someone wants to yeah. work with you directly or learn more about you, where can they go to find you? Yeah, so you can find me at uh, Maddie, M-A-D-Y, at spacestherapyla.com. So the practice I'm at, I'm at a group practice right now, which is Spaces Therapy LA. Um, there's a website as well that we have spaces, therapy, So they can, you can find me there, connect with me there. Um, 
reach out via email. I love connecting with people. That's the best way to get connected to me. Awesome. And I'll put that information in the show notes. If you're listening, you can kind of revisit it that way. That would be great. Yeah. I'd love to connect with whoever hears this and resonates with it in any way. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. If you're interested in learning how to get the absolute most out of your romantic relationships, then you're in luck because I have put together a free workshop or masterclass, if you will, about three secrets that people in happy relationships have discovered. You can view the workshop at mrspirituality.com slash three secrets. Again, it's completely free. Just go there and watch it. It'll help you on your journey, give you some wisdom, some things to think about. The website again is mrspirituality.com slash three secrets. That's mrspirituality.com slash the number three, the word secrets. It's all yours. Enjoy. Enjoy.